and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Monday. It is playoff week. ETSU second round of the FCS playoffs will play host to the Kennesaw State Owls. Pretty much saw that coming, but it is official. ETSU Kennesaw State will kick it off. William B. Green Junior Stadium, 2 o'clock on Saturday. They'll move the men's basketball game to that night, 7.30. Pre-game show, 12.30 football, 7 o'clock men's basketball. Yes, we have a men's basketball game in between now on Wednesday against UAB. We got the special coaches show Wednesday night with a pep rally at 545 down at Wildwind Cafe, 71 Wilson Avenue in Johnson City. You can also listen to that on our flagship station, 640 WXSM, and all the streaming applications of the app and everything else they got. All right, Jay Santos, Mike Gallagher, and it is a week that I know ETSU football fans are very stoked about. I don't know where the weird hatred of ETSU Kennesaw State. I know they play twice, each team won on the other team's field, but for whatever reason, there is a growing hatred of things. I think it's mainly because, I'll give you just my quick thought, is two different thoughts on how to build a program. Kennesaw State went some transfers, went older, tried to compete now. ETSU played the long game. The argument for Kennesaw State is, well, they've gone to the playoffs more. Uh, the argument for, I guess, ETSU fans is, well, but it's not got any respect and no national seed. Um, and then the arguments I love between the fan bases over which conference is worse. That, and that, that, that's the ultimate, like, argument of all time. We're going to cover all of that. And oh, good. That's oh, why good. we're here today, really, is all of those things under one umbrella. You're trying to stoke the flames? Is that what we're doing? Is, well, I mean, I'm not necessarily trying to stoke the flames, but explain the flames, and then perhaps if gasoline ends up on them, then... Okay. I think I kind of look the other way and say, look, what's meant to be is meant to be. Um, but we're going to talk all about this year's game on Thursday, as we typically do, break down the game in full, half hour, 45 minutes, however long we end up going on the second round of the FCS playoffs, Owls and Bucks. But I think that we should try and explain, or at least try and reason our way to how things got here with ETSU and Kennesaw State, because you saw the reaction from Buccaneer fans, and it was... I'd say muted jubilation, and maybe not even muted, quite honestly, but it, it was sheer excitement. I think some were overjoyed that the Bucks on the gridiron have a chance to prove everything that they've been arguing about Kennesaw State for many, many years. But before all those years started in football, what it seems like to me, and you would know this a heck of a lot better than I would, because you've been here for, I think, two decades now. Is this year 20 or 19? This is 20. This is 20. 20. Congratulations. Uh, by the way, we're also a quarter of a millennium old on Santa's and Sack Games. I think this is episode 250. Quarter of a millennium. Almost as old as you and your time here. And so you look back at basketball when these teams were in the Atlantic Sun, and I came across a game that seemed to start, like you said, a very odd, like not really quite sure why it's these two teams, but it seemed to start a, a little bit of a rivalry, at least uh, some, I'd say, small bits of hatred thrown in there between basketball teams. And the game was in 2006, and I saw a Ben Rota ejection, a Tim Smith triple-double, six technical fouls, and apparently, and I'm guessing you're probably up close for this, Rano Wooten trying to charge the Buccaneer bench, trying to break through like seven or eight people, acting like he was a fullback in the triple option for Kennesaw State. Yeah, it actually started the game before okay. that uh, at Kennesaw State, um, where 
post player for Kennesaw State, but he had sort of picked up and thrown Tim Smith, who wow. was all of you know five seven. I know we listed him five nine, but all about five seven. And it was right in front of their student section. And then Dillion Sneed, who's not a small man then or now, uh, went over there and really got into the student section and the bench area. Now nothing really happened of that. There was a technical foul cess, but everything was sort of calmed down. Then the next game, because it was sort of boiling over from the first game, then you have the situation where Rhoda and Wooten were both asked to uh, leave the game after uh, the ejections and the sort of shoving and everything that went on. But I don't remember it on Kennesaw State's end. Something happened where it was a dust-up after the whistle between um, Golden Engel and Ben Rhoda. Engel said something to Ron Wooten, and then Wooten did get about a good 50-yard head start and go running in there with, the, in essence, a shoulder tackle. Now, Wooten wasn't particularly a big guy either, so it wasn't like he knocked Rhoda down to the floor. He got shoulder tackled, so Rhoda did what most people would do, and which would go back and shoulder tackle back. And, and then, you know, it's more of a baseball fight at that point in time. You know, you can fast forward a few years later when Lucas Pedaris and uh, um, Osserman for Kennesaw State both went for a rebound. And then next thing you know, they're in like a, a hugging, bear hug, wrestling type you know, just jockeying for position for no particular reason without the basketball. And then that has got some double techs. And uh, I'm not real sure where, but I think because of what had happened on the basketball court and there had been several of those technical fouls, you know, cheap shots, whatever, had happened a lot that for the fan bases, I think they really got into the football series. And when Kennesaw State throttled ETSU in the first game, of course they let, as you would imagine, ETSU fans know. And then, to be honest with you, it felt like ETSU was an afterthought the next year at Kennesaw State that they had already sort of booked the win and was very vanilla. Didn't see a lot of the same offense we saw the time before. I had, and I did not do the broadcast, but I speculated at the time that Basically, they were saving stuff for the next couple weeks and just wanted to run their base offense and go. And then as the game went along and they couldn't shake ETSU, then they didn't know what to do. And ETSU created enough turnovers, made enough catches. Vinny Lowe made a couple sideline tiptoe grabs that were quite incredible. And as we know, J.J. German loves the, the flair for the dramatic. And in the second overtime, hits the game-winning field. Let's talk about when the two programs came back. You're a little bit ahead of me, but let's talk about when the programs came back. It, obviously, you have the basketball. You went through it pretty well over that decade while they were in the Atlantic Sun together, and then obviously the programs split and go their separate ways to different conferences. And so football comes back. There's a ton of fans that are familiar with why Kennesaw State started as strong as they did and that first year went the way it did. But as there was the lead-up to both of these programs – coming back, or in Kennesaw State's case, being alive for uh, the first time as a football program. Uh, they meet in the very first game for both of the programs, for ETSC the second iteration, for Kennesaw State the first iteration. Why did things go the way that they did? And in the lead-up to that game, that 2015 game, it seemed obvious, obviously in retrospect, that it was going to go how it was, but the varying philosophies obviously made things unfold the way they did. Yeah, I think that, and I, I can't explain really the difference in philosophies, just when they wanted to build the program, people have done it a lot 
always. And the thought process for ETSU was if you did the transfers and, you know, did a bunch of things to be good early, that you may not be able to sustain it. And so that's the long run. Now you look at it and you go, okay, ETSU three of the last four years have gone to playoffs twice. Last year narrowly missing if there was a 2014 field. Last year would have been in. But that's ETSU's stance and how they decided to attack it. Kennesaw State's was to try to get as good and competitive as early as you can. And, you know, they've been to the playoffs almost every year since, you know, they've been eligible to go to the playoffs. So it, it, it just how it was when Carl Torbush talked to Dr. Nolan and said this is the what we want to do, we want to sustain. And, you know, the real question is, okay, in the short term, and I, I would call these history right now short term, you know, Kennesaw State, it's hard to argue that they've been able to go to the playoffs. They've been competitive. They've been in the top 25 more. Than ETSU. ETSU could argue now that they've finally gotten everything caught up after four years of really trying to grow it. Then the last four years have been really spectacular football if you look at it. And then they've been in the top 25. They've made playoffs. They've got a national seed, which I don't believe Kennesaw State's had before. So I, it, it's just the philosophies. And I know ETSU had done some research with some other teams and felt like if they kind of sold themselves with the transfers and all that to be good early that it's just not worked out for those programs. Now, I don't remember the research and who all they had gone to and asked and all that, but just two different, you know, train of thoughts to get to where they are. Now, both teams still sitting here. um, How many years later in the second round of the playoffs? I'd say no matter which way you want to look at it, I would say both teams have been successful in building an FCS program. So let's look at those train of thoughts. First game back, you mentioned it. Owls went 56-16. Makes a lot of sense, right? They go out to have a 6-5 record. Bucks go 2-9 that year. ETSU had three upperclassmen on that entire roster. Tavian Lott, a transfer from Snow College. Haven't heard of that. Chad Pritchard, a Carson Newman transfer. And Sammy Hall, a Charleston transfer. Kansas State had 23 upperclassmen on that roster. Remember that number, 23. Teams meet in 2016. 26 upperclassmen for Kennesaw, ETSU 12. Didn't matter. Double overtime on the road. Huge win to start the year. Old Kennesaw State to 2.9 yards per carry. And I remember Austin Herrick told us, of course, all ETSU fans are aware, but if you're on Kennesaw State side, happen to be listening to this. Austin Herrick, the one that started pretty much every game for the first four years of the program at quarterback. And I remember he said after those first few weeks, because they won another game in there too, uh, was that the battle at Bristol year as well? Yes, so said, yes. And so started, started 2-0. And he said, yeah, he started 2-0, and he said, boy, we were sitting at the pool after, and we are like, we're going to run the table. We're going to win the SoCon National Championship. And, of course, things you know didn't quite work out uh, how he or Buck fans had hoped. But you have the two varying philosophies. You have the two varying matchups. And I think that you'd call it a what upset? What, what word would you use? Monumental? Gigantic? Uh, am I overselling it? Was it was it just big in the fact that you lost by 40 the year before, and then you come back and say, okay, this is a step to show that we are here and it's not always going to be like that? How would you describe it? Well, in the first year, too, let, let me say this. The ETSU played a lot of 2 deep. Starters played as much as the backups, which at the time, you couldn't. it was a little head-scratching, but because you mentioned all the young people, 
Nobody played college snaps, and so they were trying to create depth. The next year, they didn't play as many second-teamers except for when you would expect second-teamers to come in, give first-team guys a rest. Somebody needs a series off. There's a hobbled ankle. He comes on the field. So the second year looked a lot better because some of the number ones, and I would say, honestly, ETSU's ones were pretty close to everybody's ones. The problem was the twos weren't twos. It was almost ones to three or, you know, maybe even less. You know, instead of ones and twos, it was ones and threes, ones and threes and the halves at some areas just because, again, the offensive line, those guys are two fifty, eighteen 18-year-old kids and they're going against 22, 23-year-old guys that have been in a weight room for five years. I mean, some of it was just a little bit unfair, uh, especially on the offensive and defensive lines, but the second year, when they started that, they were like, look, okay, everyone got to play a little bit last year. We know who the starters are, right? Because we, we played everybody enough. Well, you should know sort of your role. And then the one stayed on the field longer, and ETSU just was more of a competitive team. And I think being able to get off to that good start, and that was a barometer they talked about all week, that 2016. Where are we? We got hammered by Kennesaw State. Have we made strides? Are we even going the right way? What are we doing? And then you win that game. And you turn around and win your first Southern Conference game and in your first game back in the Southern Conference, 2-0, and right? Western Carolina, that was an, up, no, that was an upset too because Western Carolina uh, was picked up a pretty good year that year. So I, I think the start of the season sort of woke everybody up of like, okay, here we go. And then, of course, the middle of that year didn't quite go well, and then you end with a big win against Sanford. And so you left that year, even with four wins, you're going, holy cow, like, okay. Now you can start to see things get some momentum. It took another year or two to get playoffs from there, but you started to see sort of what the ETSU side was preaching. You know, in Kennesaw State in their first year, they go six and five and immediately played in the Big South, which they were just two and four in the Big South. Then the next year, they go 8-3. and three. They lost to ETSU, lost to Liberty, lost to Charleston Southern. You know, and they ran the, the table the rest of the way. So um, you can just see just the difference in sort of what teams wanted to do. Um, and, again, right, wrong, and different, that's sort of how they built. But I think it's led both teams to where they are right now. So that 23 number, the 23 upperclassmen, they had that on the 2015 team. Kennesaw State. The first time ETSU had that was 2017. Kennesaw State's record 2015, you know, right about 500, right? Six and five, two and four in the conference, a couple of conference wins. ETSU, once they got to that number, right around 500, a couple of conference wins. In 2017, yeah, they were two years behind Kennesaw, but as you said, because of how they chose to build the program. Carl Torbush has his final year in 2017, does his job, right? I, I think that gathering everything I can, because I got here in 2017, it seemed like, and maybe no one said this outwardly, but the understood, unwritten part of bringing in Coach Torbush was, and now if things accelerated and were great, like maybe Coach stays another you know, X amount of years, but his main job was to get the program to a point where you can run out there and be competitive every Saturday in your conference. And you don't necessarily have to excel for it to be success, but you brought in a program that was nothing. Right? Didn't even have what footballs, helmets, you know, the whole how the whole story goes. So it seemed like that was the understood part of the agreement between all parties. And so after twenty seventeen, which was Coach Torbush's final year, he was ushered out, 
on good terms because it seemed like he had accomplished his job. And the other underlying factors, Kansas State had a stadium that was a, a soccer team that I don't remember if it was semi-pro or it wasn't MLS, but semi-pro or whatever, and they allowed you know them to sort of share the field. It was on campus. It was built for soccer. They just converted it, a few things here and there for some boxes, fifth, third bank field, and I think that was a huge difference for Kennesaw State. ETSU played two years at Kermit Tipton Stadium, and you just can't tell me it's hard to bring a guy on a recruiting visit and go, here's where you're going to play. Like, you try to show them the renderings. You're t- until you see, and brick and mortar got sort of laid down, and you can see that where they were uh, taking out the bowl for where the stadium sits now. Until you start to see some of that, recruiting was real tough. Um, for ETSU for that. And I think, you know, and and it's worked out because obviously ETSU Stadium, you know, it is what it is. It's it's one of the meccas, I think, um, in the Southern Conference. And I also think you saw a drop-off in support for Kennesaw State over the last several years. I mean, they had 2,300, I think it was announced, for their playoff game. You know, there's going to be 10,000-plus um, at ETSU, and I don't know if that's just because, well, we've seen them go to the playoffs and they win a game or two and they're they're done. But, I mean, you just look at, you know, and I've not looked at this year's full attendance form, but actually I can't right now. i got it in front of me. But, you know, they opened up Ron Hart 6,500. They Jacksonville State brought 7,000, which is a big game. They had 9,000 against North Carolina A&T, but the playoff game had 2,700. And now it is Thanksgiving weekend. You can – throw that out there. But the week before, they played for the conference championship, de facto conference championship game versus Monmouth, 4,600. There's going to be 10,000. I mean, so it's just a different and, – and, again, Kennesaw's kind of been there, done that, win a first round. It's – you know, fan bases can be a little fickle if you win but not win enough. And so that 2017 you were talking about, what does ETSU do outside of after the year? Say, Coach Torbush, thank you, appreciate it. Go hire a new head coach. They also opened up their new stadium in early 2017. And then you bring in Randy Sanders, and you have the storybook 2018, a championship trip to the FCS playoffs, and we kind of took it into our own hands to restoke the flames. Hey, ESPN. We saw our friends at Kennesaw State make a pitch to host game day in Atlanta on November 17th. Great idea, great execution. One stat in particular stood out. They also haven't lost a home game in 737 days. Huh. You know, we played Kennesaw State to start that same season. The option toss. Oh, ball is loose. East Tennessee State's got the football is down. The kick for the win is good. Ball game. East Tennessee State knocks off Kennesaw. In all seriousness, they have a great program. They've done a ton of winning, and it's brand new. But ETSU has 80-plus years of tradition behind them in football. And while Kennesaw State was just starting out in 2015, ETSU was welcoming their program back after 12 years without it. And since then, we've come a long way. And so you get the idea, obviously. But I think it was maybe a little over the top to go the direction that we did using the clip where a guy gets almost decapitated on the field and is, like, twitching and knocked out clearly. Uh, it's fair enough. Fair enough. It was. It was. Absolutely no flag of the play. Uh, big, strong huge, gigantic hit probably would be flagged in this day and age. Uh, but was it a bit much to call them out directly and use that hit and troll their, I'm sure it was an intern or student that was just trying to have some fun on camera giving this game name pitch that they did? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, there's no doubt. But I think that's what college athletics are about is having rivalries like that. And 
if you have to, yeah, taking a couple of good-natured shots. If you hurt, I mean, we gave Kennesaw State their credit. Um, inside, sarcastic as it may have been, obviously. But, you know, it, truly, I, I thought it was in a semi-professional way in the sense that we kind of sugarcoated it a little bit, right? Okay, they're a good program. They've done this and this. Obviously, with only the hope and thought that we're going to prop ourselves up, and we obviously, I think, did that to the best of our abilities. But I think that was another moment where it just kind of got strung along. All of this that we're talking about from basketball where there were things a couple of years, and then you know, you're in the A-Sun and had you know a couple of flare-ups over uh, the early 2010s, and then you, know, you go to different conferences. Is it really going to be able to sustain? Okay, well, both football programs are back now, so we can mix it up on the gridiron, and that's the middle 2010s. And then you have this in 2018, and now here in 2021, it's like another little step in this makeshift rivalry that has been built. And I think it's kind of impressive that 15 years after that big scrape on the court where there were six technicals and a couple of ejections and guys charging benches and such, I think it's pretty impressive that with how little the programs have actually been around each other in high-intensity atmospheres, that this has sustained as long as it has. Because I think that you agree with me here that probably the big four moments would be the 2006 game, then you brought up one other basketball game, so you can throw in the 2008 or 9 or whatever it was, the two football games, and then us just being complete uh, jerks to them on social media in 2018. I mean, it seems like those are the five if you throw that second basketball game. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's always been just sort of shade between, I think, even the Southern Conference in Kennesaw State, too. Um, Oh, I'll get there. Okay, well, I, will, I won't <laughs> skip that. Then. But five sort of thing. I mean, I've just had things happen. I mean, there's no real connection or tie. I don't know if because I've always said Chattanooga is Upper Georgia and Kennesaw is Upper Georgia, if that's it, or, or, or if the water just flows south just into Kennesaw and they drink the Chattanooga water or something happens. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know one way or another, but it just seems like, as it always does, right, when you get into conferences that are so close together and the arguing and, you know, well, the Big South's terrible. Well, show me the Southern Conference. What have they done in play? And then you go back and forth, and then, well, this team beat that. Well, we're whatever. I, I think it just adds to it. It is one of the stranger rivalries, I think, that, that I have. I get, like, early in the basketball and I think Kennesaw State, when they're making transition to Division Two, Division One, was the only win they had against ETSU. When they had Engel and Wooten and guys that, um, as D2 to D1, the guys that weren't D1 qualifiers but are allowed to play up because they've been there and they're transitioning. And once they had to get qualifiers to D1 in, then all of a sudden they took a massive step back. And in basketball, you see that more than even football just because the, the numbers in football, there's just not that many guys. But basketball, you can get a couple of guys that could play maybe for whatever reason, couldn't get the grades, didn't have the uh, you know, GPA, ACT, whatever it is. They can get to play Division Two. They kind of luck up onto a roster that goes D1. They get sort of grandfathered in they, as long as they've kept their grades up in school. And then you can get a little bit of competitive there. But then once they start bringing in other guys that are – qualified they're just down the, the totem pole and who they can get and so 
Uh, and Kennesaw State was a D2 power, which was another thing. They were getting some pretty good athletes that couldn't play D1 for whatever reason, but getting really good athletes. But they won the first game, sort of made some noise, and then ETSU, I think, rattled off like 18, 19 in a row, something crazy. And so it was really not a rivalry on the basketball court. It was just because they had other stuff go on. And then I think it carried over into football. And then Kennesaw State certainly, I mean, it was a, a got throttled. I mean, let's just be honest. It was a pretty good beatdown. I think ETSU took the opening drive, went down and kicked a field goal. And then from there, they led 13-17. And then it just went downhill. But, you know, 56-16 is a pretty good pretty good number put on the board by Kennesaw State and for the Bucks to be able to, to bounce back and then sort of thump their chest back at them and then not play again until uh, this year will be interesting. So let's talk about conferences because okay. I may not be here to stoke the ETSU Kennesaw State flames but I am certainly here to stoke the Big South Southern Conference flames. I just don't think the Big South has a leg to stand on specifically in football and quite honestly it's a lot of sports but I think specifically football. Did a deep dive, looked back, have to have history if you're going to make this kind of argument, right? Like, you can't just throw out random, ridiculous opinions. And some of this may be ridiculous to some, but I think the history backs up the SOCON in that it is just so much further down the road in football than the Big South is. And part of that is because they only started sponsoring football in 2002. But the Big South's longest and most tenured, most recognizable members of the league don't even have football. UNCA, Radford, Winthrop, don't have it. Other longest tenured member, Charleston Southern has two regular season football titles. The Southern Conference has four different schools that have won national championships in their history. Furman, Marshall, Georgia Southern, Appalachian State, and have conference winners up and down the board. Every current program has some significant history of success. The one exception may be being Western Carolina, right? And even they've had, you know, here and there. They actually played for a national championship, though, in 82. Did they? They did. Were they in the Southern Conference? Yes, lost, lost in the national championship game in 1982. Throw them in there, too. Even Sanford has conference titles of their name. Mercer doesn't yet, but you can see the last couple of years, it's not going to be long with Drew Cronick there should he choose to stay. They're atop the team league. Like two-thirds of the Big South teams don't have league titles. It is a stepping stone league. We have seen it time and time again. Programs stop by any shred of success they see, like second round of the FCS playoffs, for instance. They get out ASAP. Coastal Carolina did it. Liberty did it. And, and yes, you hear App State, Marshall, Georgia Southern, well, they aren't in the Southern Conference anymore. Absolutely not. They did because they had the same type of thought process as those teams in the Big South. Eh, maybe. But we're talking national championship level success. We're talking top of the mountain at your level. All of the Southern Conference teams had multiple national, not just one, multiple Three in a row for App State, right? Georgia Southern, Southern went back-to-back. Back back. Back. Marshall, I think, went back-to-back back and was in the title game like four straight years. Big Furman, and Furman's still here. They had the one, but they're still here. They have not left. They're still a national champion in this conference. And you look at the level you have to get to in the Big South, it's like, okay, when is the perfect time for me to sense opportunity to leave this league behind because it's not doing anything for me. I'm having to carry it. It's giving nothing back. That's the attitude of these Big South teams. And quite honestly, I'm not sure that it will ever be anything more than that because this year's a perfect example. You look at the league and how it played out, and this is how it's been the last couple of years, right? Monmouth, 
and Kennesaw State. And the rest of the league had zero teams above 500, even at 500, in league play. The SOCON had six teams at 500 or above. And that speaks to the parity, obviously, of the league, which I always am championing. But it also speaks to the history of this league and the fact that this year is reflecting it perfectly, the fact that you have had success for pretty much every program in the conference. 17 FCS bids for the Big South since they started going to the FCS playoffs in 2006. The SOCON has 17 bids since 2013, before this season. And the Big South has gotten six at-large bids ever. The SOCON had six from 2016 to 2018. Now, you can say, if you're someone that defends the Big South, well, the SOCON's had football X amount of years longer. And true, right? But you also then can't turn around and say, the Big South, what do you mean they're not up to the task in football like the Southern Conference? That's ridiculous. It's kind of like the Kennesaw State versus ETSU argument, except on a larger scale. Kennesaw State came in, older guys were ahead of the curve, were there at a level that could compete earlier on because of how they approached things. Okay, the SOCON's been around longer, so are they more equipped to win? Do they have more history? Have they got this long resume that you can point to and say, this is going to outpoint the Big South on every single element that we bring up? And maybe it is just the youth of the Big South. But if it is just the youth, then you can't go out front and say, the Big South is as good of a league, or the Big South can contend at a high level on the national stage like the Southern Conference has. You can't say those things because they are not true. And that's where I think part of it comes in with ETSU and Kennesaw State fans as well, is Kennesaw State has no realistic idea of where they are right have they had a ton of success? Like you heard in that clip that I said on that pitch for game day. Absolutely they have. And props to them because I think that the way that they built their program early on, and of course hindsight's 2020, but was a very smart way to build it versus how ETSU decided to build theirs if you wanted immediate success. But everything else regarding Kennesaw State, the league that they're in, the weird criticism of ETSU that, oh, they only run the ball. Well, what are you talking about? I mean, all you've ever done is run the ball, and it's been fine for you. How is it now do you just want to criticize ETSU because all they do is run the ball? And, by the way, our quarterback completed 90% of his passes in the championship game, like, last week. So find your facts, back them up, do some research, like we do on this show. Uh, you cannot go point for point with the Southern Conference on history, on recency, on currency, on success at the highest levels. And that's where some of the frustration comes in because Kennesaw State fans seem to be blind to their own conference mediocrity and blind to the fact that they built differently. So, yes, they're going to be further ahead. Look at the last four years. Once ETSU caught up, had the 23 that we talked about, the upper class, and then that next year, 2018 playoffs, 2019. Obviously a throwaway year. Seven quarterbacks played that year. And pretty much everything was one score loss. 2021 in a really strange season where you didn't get to play everybody, contended for a conference title, 2021, back in the playoffs. I am super excited for this game because, to me, this is keeping this rivalry going. To me, this is for bragging rights. To me, this is for, obviously, a big spot in the playoffs and going on to NDSU, which is awesome. But it also is, in the grander scheme of things, 
to make sure that this sustains so that we can have these conversations later on that I will get fired up about, you don't get fired up about, and we know Kennesaw State fans and the radio guy will get fired up about. Uh, obviously, they have drawn a lot of uh, criticism from BGSU fans on social media for that exact fact. I'm excited for it because all of that history that we just talked about is going to culminate on the biggest stage that these two teams have been on facing each other. The advantage, I will say, that Kennesaw State will have coming into the game is the fact that they have played in three or four straight years in the playoffs, and I believe they've won a game each of those four years. So they do have that going for them as opposed to ETSU that played 2018, had the fumble at the one-yard line, one in to tie the game in the fourth quarter, and then obviously missing out because they shortened the number of teams in the playoffs last year. Um, and then sitting and waiting while Kennesaw State beat the Pioneer champion Davidson Wildcats. So the one thing that Kennesaw State, I think, has a distinct advantage is the fact that they are going to have to go play uh, or they are going to play knowing that they have won playoff games before and ETSU, how will they respond? I'd say that would be the one pro if you're a Kennesaw State fan you could easily point to and say, well, We've been here. We've gone on the road and won at Jacksonville State. You know, we lost nip and tuck game at South Dakota State. You know, they who else did they beat? They beat Wofford at Wofford. You know, they went to Weber State and lost a six point game. So they've been in these games before, and I think that there is some credence into that. League may be bad, but they still no doubt. have gone home and away. They've gone and won games in the playoffs, Absolutely. and so they have. You know, if you're a senior on that team or a super senior, you would have won two or three, four playoff games before. So I think their confidence level of coming in, I think, has to be high, and I don't think Kennesaw State is going to be rattled at that. I would be my only, and we'll talk more about this on Thursday, but my main concern would be will Kennesaw State, because they have been there, done that, and played. Now, granted, I'm looking at some of these attendance numbers and some of the way games and actually lost to South Dakota State at home uh, a few years ago. They've won at Jacksonville State. They won at Wofford, lost at Weber State. So, and then, of course, they didn't make the playoffs last year because Monmouth, and again, they got kind of shorted. They didn't get enough games in either, but they were in the same boat as ETSU, really didn't get an opportunity to, to compete and would have been in the playoffs if they had an extra uh, round. So, that being said, I think that is an advantage for Kennesaw State. They have played in the playoffs. They have won playoff games. Playoff football just hits differently. That being said, I think the ETSU fan base is just frothing at the mouth to get a home playoff game, and there will be 10,000 people that will just be going bonkers, and the energy in the building I think will be like none other because I know Jacksonville State listed 17,000 for their game against uh, Kennesaw State in the first round, but don't forget we played there the next year in 2018, and they listed 19,000, and – there couldn't be more of a lie than Jacksonville State's football. There's probably, for every, I don't know, 1,500 seats, they count a person. Uh, I'm not real sure. It's uh, the worst accounting of seats in the history of mankind. So, ETSU fans should be frothing at the mouth because of the brash absurdity of some of the claims of Kennesaw State fans. To say that ETSU does not deserve a national seat, you haven't played anybody. You don't play anyone any year. Your conference is garbage. Now, you beat Jacksonville State this year. That was nice. 31-6. to 6. 
Other wins, okay, Reinhardt, I mean, 91, right? Wofford had a terrible year. I mean, 12 losses in a row. And by the way, the shocking news there that maybe we'll talk about Thursday, that Josh Cockman will be back. But then you go into conference play, so you have you know, Wofford, Reinhardt, Jacksonville State, nice win, no question. But to say that ETSU, because they haven't played anyone, and all they do is run the ball, and these absurd, outrageous, preposterous thoughts about why the Bucks should not have gotten a national seed. And, or and somehow knocking the Vandy win when they lost to oh, a three-win Georgia Tech team. Yeah, let, let, lost let, by let's calm down. four let's touchdowns, too. Like, let's yeah, calm people down. that are ripping beating an SEC team. I, I mean, imagine. Like, w- w- what world are you living in? So, Buck fans should be frothing at the mouth because the talk on Kennesaw State's side, as it always is, is so over the top and so outlandish that there's really no reasoning with it. But... This will be a game that, much like you say, and I mentioned earlier, they have had tons of success. They have been there, and they have accomplished stuff on the national stage. Nothing super noteworthy, but, yes, they have won games in the FCS playoffs. ETSU has not. They might win this game. There's no doubt. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, and we'll break it more down on Thursday. Uh, but this is a winnable game for both sides. Yes, Kennesaw State could, could come in here, and they could prove that they are the better team this year, right? ETSU could do the exact same thing, and that's where the frustration is. I don't think Kennesaw State sees it as even possible that they could lose this game. Well, I hope that the Bucks are using that as motivation. I hope that they are looking at what they did to Kennesaw State in 2016 against very, very long odds, considering they lost by 40 the year before. I hope they're looking at this as, and of course, staying within themselves, but looking at this as an opportunity not only to advance in the FCS playoffs this year, but to advance Southern Conference and a rivalry because this has been one that has been fun to keep up with since I've been here and obviously much further before that when you've been around at basketball and then those first couple of games against Kennesaw State. I am pumped that things have worked out this week. Well, we'll break it down on Thursday. So that is a little bit of a a precursor. The prelude. To uh, our breakdown on Thursday, ETSU Kennesaw State, Saturday, 2 p.m., William B. Green Jr. Stadium. When we come back, Talk a little hoops. We'll talk men's basketball, then women's basketball for this timeout. Send to a sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. And boy, it, uh, it's amazing uh, what you saw from the App State Tennessee 
sort of two-game swing, which I said earlier, I thought that was similar to, you know, how the season started last year. And if they could beat Upstate, it would be like the same way in Middle Tennessee. And then they got a tournament, and I was like, okay, now we'll kind of figure out who ETSU is because they're going to play three solid <clears throat> mid-major opponents. And the first couple are going to compete for, I believe, um, their respective conference titles. Now, Kent State, not sure exactly where they were picked in the MAC. I think they were more middle than upper. But still, Murray State, top three OVC. Um, Missouri State, you know, Missouri Valley, they were – I think up there third or fourth. So ETSU won in three different ways. I think that was really the Kent State fourth. Yeah. So okay. So up upper okay. because the Max got a lot. So you look at worst case scenario, fourth or better for all those teams in their league. ETSU was picked preseason third or fourth, right? If I'm not mistaken, I already forgotten the rank. Correct. So everyone's similar, about the same, and then ETSU huge win against Murray State. The, one of the better shootouts, just pure. You stumbled across the Missouri State game, just a spectacular played basketball game, both sides. And then you get into Kent State, and it was a rock fight. It was just not sure what, what was going on. ETSU did get up by 19, and they had all these stretches where they just couldn't score, but was able to get a big Jordan King jumper, some free throw to Charlie Weber, and then they take home the Naples Invitational, and then they play Lee's McCray, which is eerily similar to 2016, which ETSU went to the Pentagon Showcase uh, in South Dakota won three against three solid major teams. As a matter of fact, two of the three teams went to the NCAA tournament. The other one went to the NIT and uh, came back and had a five-point win versus Lee's McCray. So was, we've seen this song and dance before. ETSU was able to uh, wake up a little sooner in this one than they were in 2016, but still uh, eerily similar. Glad to survive. And now they're going to go Wednesday to take on a very solid UAB team. That being said, David Sloan's been phenomenal this part of the year. Jordan King has shown that he can score. I like that Jordan King has now uh, said to heck with just shooting threes. He's got that mid-range pull-up jumper he's used effectively now for the last three or four games. Charlie Weber's been incredible off the bench. The rebounding is really what I want to point to. The fact that they are crashing the glass uh, at times in the mid-major games dominant on the glass I think has changed the complexion Uh, one and done on one end offensive rebounds on the other Uh, they've done a decent job taking care of the basketball they still have moments and there's been a couple games in that Kent State game I think he's throwing because neither team want to hang on the basketball but there have been times or stretches still where Mike I think they're loose with the basketball and I would like to see them tighten that up but there's a lot of things, I think, to be excited for with so many unknowns going into this season. It is funny that you mentioned that MTSU game in comparison to that USCF State game going into it because that MTSU game was, what, 57-43? Yeah, it was one point off. <laughs> USCF State, 56-43. And i got to tell you, after that USCF State game, you were both courtside for it, um, I was extremely concerned. Like, App State, tournament team, tight game, well contested on both sides. Like, I don't think that you could fault either team for how they played. I don't think that either team could have said at the end of it, boy, we got, well, the Bucks would likely say we got robbed. But you can't be mad that the other team won because both teams played pretty well, right? A, a couple of tournament quality teams, F State a tournament team last year. And yes, the last possession, you can say, ah, charge block. Okay, yes, maybe ETSU was robbed in that sense, quote-unquote, at least some would think, but it was a hotly contested, 
quality mid-major basketball game. Tennessee, you know what you're going to get there, right? Would have liked to hang a little bit tougher, sure, but, I mean, they have some individual players that are pretty impressive. And so then you have USC Upstate, and he scored 56, and it was not pretty in any sense. And I walked out of Freedom Hall that night saying, yikes, this is going to be a long year. And you hear the comparisons. You made one. I've heard some others you know, make comparisons to last year. You know, that to me isn't success. If you're comparing this year to last year, the Bucks went 13 and 12. You know, we're a game above 500, and we're a second round out in the SoCon tournament. That's not success, not for this program. So well, I think they got hosed last year, like everybody did. Because I mean, you tell me you don't think they would have beat Sanford twice. You don't think they would have beat Mike. They would have been 16, 17 wins. Would have had a higher seed. Sure, and if would have had a different matchup. I, I just well, you can play and, that and game for every team. Uh, agreed, agreed. But but I think it's hard to sit here and go that last year was me, 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 because I think there were some things that didn't play out. Now, it also could have went the other way. If Sanford beat ETSU twice, and they go with it, maybe ETSU's thirteen and eighteen, and it is an awful year instead of uh, me year. Well, you but. know how I felt about last year at the time. It was wow, you have a ton of new guys back. Or, sorry, you have a ton of new guys in. You have a new coaching that staff. That was impressive. Yeah, a ton of new guys back. That's incredible. You have a ton of new guys in with a new coaching staff, so many moving parts. You have the second fewest returning letter winners and, like, the second, you know, most minutes played that are new or whatever the stats were. Basically, you're one of the top three newest teams in the country trying to get everything to work in a COVID year. And I still will say, for what hand they were dealt, that was an impressive year. But this is not that team. This is a team with the Brewers back, with David Sloan back, with – Styles to get back. Heck, look now with Charlie Weber back. I mean, you've got a lot back on this team. So saying, oh, yeah, let's compare it to last year, and last year's going to be all right, that would not be a success for this team because this team is more veteran, more experienced. They've been together. Yes, you're dealing with another new coaching staff, but you have some familiarity on the court, and we know what we're getting in terms of individual talent with this team. It is a talented squad. There is no doubt about it. So – when I heard you make that comparison, I was worried. When I watched the Bucks play USC Upstate, I was worried. My perception of this team could not be more different one week after you were going into the Naples Invitational at 1-2, and two, and you had Murray State, Missouri State, Kent State, as it turned out. Those three in your way, you knew Murray State. You thought that was going to be tough, and then who knows after that. You said last week on this show two wins would be success, and then you go in three. And then you struggle with Lee's McCray for a while, but you're right. It was the exact same set of circumstances as 2016. Three wins in three days post-Thanksgiving. Out-of-state tournament. You win the tournament. You come back. You've got a team that can't even get D1 games. They hadn't played a D1 game between 2016 and now because no one will schedule them. And Steve Arden at least said to me, look, we want those games. It's great to be, quote-unquote, D1 for a day. We get recruits based off that. Hey, we're going to go and play D1 teams. But we can't do that when teams don't schedule us because they see what we've done. Half their last six games against D1 opponents were separated by seven or less. So that wasn't a surprise, but I was a bit worried. Then you hear Desmond Oliver postgame, and he's like, well, we ran like two offensive sets the whole day. We scored 92, and I'm like, well, you think about it that way. So I think the moral of it, and we can go back and forth on this, ups, downs, the roller coaster that a new team can be, it is too early to judge based off anything. Just like it was too early to judge ETSU after one game last year when they got blown out by Abilene Christian. Just like it was too early to judge them when they won six of their first seven league games. Honestly, like halfway through league season, we clearly still didn't know what was going to go on with this team. And talk about all the other stuff that went on. Yes, I understand that. 
and the fact you didn't get to play Sanford and so on and so forth. But we also got to play a shorthanded chat team in the postseason. And if they didn't have two guys missing, two of their top three scores. I'm sorry, you're never going to give me a full nah, side chat. You're that. never, you're that. never going to. That's, that's played out exactly how it should have played out. <laughs> After the two times ETSU, the, the buzzer beater, the timeout, I think it's just karma. That, the only point to bring it up last year was, I think after two losses last year, after two losses this year, that ETSU, I think they thought, fans thought, we're going to just jump off the ship, right? The first two games last year, there were people like, oh, God, by the way, hired Dave Shea. Oh, we're sitting in the time. You look at the first two games this year, it's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, we never That's get beat like yeah. So the whole point was, for me, when you have new, and here's the truth. When Steve Forbes came in, and some people point to him, he had guys on his staff he had worked with for years together, like truly worked together on staff, or he was the head coach. They were directly assistants for him. And so there's somewhat of knowledge for Jason Shea. He had not worked with any of the three assistants for Desmond Oliver. Yeah, he had worked with a couple of the guys, but a couple of the guys were like, student managers or graduate managers or not, and, and he wasn't a head coach. So I, th- you have to give a little bit of time for the staff and for the play- everybody to kind of figure out what's going on, and two games is not enough. I said it last year. There wasn't enough then. It wasn't enough this year. Now, my whole point was ETSU ended up being fine after the first two games. You know, not world beat, but they were fine, and then they played, and you want, I was just saying after App in Tennessee, it's going to be like last year. Look, they're going to beat a bad USCFC team to beat a bad Middle Tennessee. Right. And then from there, let's see where do they go before we judge. That was really the only sort of point that I was trying to make there as far as the comparisons to there. There's just so many new. And let's be fair, there are players, and there's not many, but there are a few players that are on their third coach and third, third year. Charlie Weber's had three different coaches in three years. Ladarius Brewer, although he sat out, he still had a different coach. And so I think it takes a while, and each guy fits differently. And Charlie Weber had a little trouble fitting in. And and honestly, he just couldn't get on the floor in that 30-4 win team, let's just be honest. And then the next year, you know, I think he was trying to figure out with Coach Shea what they wanted. And for Coach Oliver, they've been very distinct on this is your role. You're not doing anything else. We are giving you this job and this job, and that is what you're going to do, and maybe that's what Charlie needed. Maybe it's the third year, and he's figured stuff out on his own. It's been a pleasant surprise to see him come off the bench. ETSU's been doing all of this without really the Brewer brothers being the Brewer brothers. Right. And if they come around with everybody else playing with it, that's the one thing I think that I've liked so far about this team, which is what I liked about the 30. And I'm not comparing this team is going to be that team. <laughs> Different, you want to compare it to 2021, 21, and now you want to compare it to 2019, 20? People scored and carried the team. It wasn't yeah. always, you know, Courtney Pegram. It wasn't always Jelon Gwynn. It wasn't Cromer, right? Eight different leading scorers, right? They're, Do I remember the stats? So they've already had different guys that can lead, and they've had different multiple guys in double figures on different nights. They had three guys with double figure rebounds last game. So I, that's. The, what makes a dangerous team, I think, unless you have a big three, which ETSU has won with a big three before, they've also won with multiple guys beating you. The glory years were multiple guys that could beat you. The 34 team was multiple guys that could beat you. It's the same thing. Multiple guys, you know, I think this year could be it. 
And right now, I think the team isn't being selfish of, I'm not getting my points. Or at least I'm not seeing point envy, shot envy that we've seen on other teams. I've not seen that so far. I've seen guys that are really just competing and wanting. That doesn't mean guys don't take bad shots here and there. But that being said, I see guys that are doing what they can to win basketball games. Charlie Weber had 55 points and 53 rebounds in his career entering these last five games. He has 47 points and 26 rebounds in these last five. I don't know what is going on, and you make a point that could be maybe Charlie, like Coach said, is taking preparation more seriously, watching more film. Maybe he had just made a dedicated effort to be a better version of himself on the court. Maybe it is something that Desmond Oliver is doing, and I know Desmond rides Charlie hard in practice, and he still has lapses in positioning and remembering what to do on the court. I think that's still concerning, but, I mean, it doesn't matter when you're putting up that kind of production as a, I guess, quote-unquote backup center. I mean, he's been the better of the two with he and a decade, at least over the last five games, uh, but even include those first couple as the stats are better for Charlie. Silas did have probably his first good game, I'd say, against Lise McRae. Now, I'm not going to buy a whole lot into Charlie's game against Lise McRae. He had first double-double, a career high in points and rebounds, but he did that against Milligan, essentially, as well. Uh, he didn't have a double-double, but he had double-digit points you know, a couple of years back, and everyone was like, oh boy, here comes Charlie, and then the rest of the season kind of flamed out, but he has been a revelation. Whatever has clicked in his head. Whatever is going right with his game, I definitely did not see it coming. Uh, is it something that he can sustain season long? I don't know. Time will tell. But these five games have been pretty incredible, and it's no surprise that the Bucks have won the five that he has performed well in. The other guy, and you mentioned David Sloan and Jordan King, I want to bring up Ty Brewer because I think a lot of what this team is accomplishing right now outside of, of course, Charlie being a difference maker. But Ty Brewer definitely has not been himself on the offensive end consistently, but the fact that he is buying into rebounding and defense. Like, everybody's going to have a role to play on a team that's going to go and accomplish a ton of things. It's going to go and contend for a league title. It's going to go and be a top three seed. It's going to go and be in a championship game in the postseason, maybe make the NCAA tournament. If the Bucks want to be able to do those things, they need someone that is going to, like Isaiah Tisdale did on the 2019-20 team, they need someone that is going to buy in on being the best player on the floor, on that end of the floor at all times. And that's when Oliver said it. Ty Brewer hounds him about wanting to be the best defensive player on the court, wanting to guard whoever it is, whether it's point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center, guarding the best scorer on the other team. And you saw rebounding-wise, I think he had, what, 10, 12? I don't know what it was on Saturday against Lee McRae, but he's the leader on this team in steals and rebounds on the season, and I don't think I could have foreseen that mindset either, you know, because we know the incredible ability, raw ability of Ty Brewer. You don't see a lot of players with his kind of tools say, all right, forget what I have wanted to do a lot of my career, which is be, right, that number one scorer you know, want to get the shots, want to fill it up. I'm going to go take an interest in other parts of the game, and that's going to make us a better team. Props to him, because that has been huge in the room. I, I think to hear Coach talk about, I want to guard whoever. Like, <clears throat> who's the best player? Give them to me. Like, always begging 
to guard that. Leading rebounder. Thumb injury. We'll see how that plays out. It's non-shooting hand, but I think it's still affecting everything that he is doing. Um, still kind of shows it that way. I think Silas Adeke, when the offense comes around, because he's doing things on the defensive end, setting screens offensively, unselfish things. I think when he gets his offensive game going, that that also is going to help the inside-out sort of play because right now they're still – and I know Charlie's had some points in there, but they still need Silas to score some points down low to help free up everything. And I love the fact that they're putting Ladarius Brewer on the block and letting him just be an athlete. And I don't know that anybody can guard him down there. I think it's still – concerning that he has had trouble scoring at times and hadn't got things to go down exactly the way. But again, he doesn't appear to be pouting about it. Doesn't, you know, just seems to go out and play his game and, and keep going. So the Brewer brothers get scoring. Charles Sedeke gets scoring. And, and you're already talking about a team that's 5-2. and two, It's won five in a row. And Wednesday's going to be a tough test because UAB is really good. Picked to win their league. They came up here. I thought ETSU let a game slip away last year. Um, I thought it was interesting. Coach Oliver's pregame comments talked about last year was traumatic, but not in the sense you think it would be. It was in the fact of all the close losses and just how that can keep wearing on you. And eventually, like, you expect to lose. And how I thought that was an interesting way to word that, interesting way to look at it. Makes sense to me because we hear this all the time. Teams have to learn how to win. They don't know how to win. We talked about ETSU football. They don't know how to win. They don't know how to put teams away. They don't have a step on somebody's throat when they got them down to try to bury them. Um, you know, instead of a six-point game, you make it a 20-point, and everybody gets to start the car a little bit early. So that's sort of what I think he's getting at there, and I think getting those three players, a decade and the Brewers, going because Sloan and King have proven so far that they've, you know, up to scoring double figures. You know, I think Sloan, and I'm not pulling for Sloan not to score a lot. I'm just saying I think if Sloan was able to distribute a little bit more and keep the 10, 12 points, get that six, seven assist that we saw earlier this year, or eight, I guess it was, against Appalachian State, that's where I would like to see David Sloan, you know, 12, 14 points, seven, eight assists, you know, um, and those seven, eight assists are going out to the Brewers. It's almost a decade. Jordan King doing the mid-range jumper. So I'm excited for what this team is doing and what they're going to be. The 10-man rotation is, seems to be Coach Oliver's sort of stamp on everything. That's what he's been doing, rotating the same guys. I know Charles had not played as much because of the ankle injury, but it seems like when he is healthy, they're going to rotate him in. And so I like the fact that you're getting that instead of the 7-8-man rotation because, as we know, when you get to tournament time and all that, ETSU has been able to use their athleticism to victories because they have fresher legs than most teams, and we'll see how this team goes. I believe that ETSU has won in five in games separated by six or less last year, and then if you throw in the Appalachian State game in the first game of the season, then it's you know, six of your last seven. They have lost in games separated by that amount. I just don't know if we know a ton about this team yet, but I think this UAB game on Wednesday is going to be a real measuring stick uh, on the road against a really quality team. They've got two losses this year. Uh, they were buying five combined points. One was to an SEC team in South Carolina, and then a loss to San Francisco in their last game back in Vegas on the 26th. Uh, their five wins, they've scored 80 or more. Two losses, they've been held to 61 and 63. So games in the 60s, not their strength, with I, which I think benefits ETSU a lot, because uh, I think the Bucks can win a game right
right around that scoring number, and they've proven that they can win a lot of different games. That's been one of the really nice things about this early stretch is they can win the high scoring. They can win the offensive. They can also hold you to 43. They can also hold you to 51 and win games. Seven players gone from last year's team for UAB, uh, including Jalen Benjamin. That's the one, if you remember, that got Marcus Nyblak ejected in that little scrum on the floor, back-to-back text on Nyblak. And then ultimately, Benjamin, who actually – it appeared on replay, threw a little mini punch in that scrum and probably should have ejected himself. He made the big bucket down the stretch, three with 37 seconds left to break a tie, and UAB wouldn't trail again. Their top three scorers are back, though, for UAB. Michael Ertle and Quan Jackson were already grad students, but they're back again this year. Taven Lovin back, too. Trey Jemison is back, 7 feet, 260 pounds. Bucks held him down pretty well offensively last year, but he did have 12 rebounds and three blocks. And then the one big addition for the Blazers is Jordan Walker. He was at Tulane for two years after starting at Seton Hall. Played a lot at Tulane, not much for the Pirates. Led the team in, or leads the team in scoring assists and three-point shooting coming in. So this is a really good team. And they've got 97 steals in seven games. So they're going to really challenge ETSU on the ball and, and make things difficult in that way. And if they can turn defense into offense, I think that the Bucks could be in trouble. Um, can ETSU keep this game in the 60s is going to be my key for it because Coach Oliver said he thinks this is, what, the second-best team they're going to play in the non-conference outside of, obviously, Tennessee. And I think I'd have to agree looking at the schedule. Um, And so if you can play the style that has been exhibited in your most successful days, and I guess I count those as your championship win over Kent State and Uh, Then even just your first win under Coach Oliver against USC Upstate, you know, holding opponents down and playing that ferocious, hounding defense. This is going to be a team that's a lot more talented than either of those teams that they played and were able to hold to 51 and 43. Um, But I'm excited to see it because, yeah, they're they're a top-level team and uh, with a lot back. So running this one back with, you know, ETSU having three of their top four scorers back and UAB having their top three back, it's a chance for redemption. And not everyone was here for that game, but the Brewers were. You know, David Sloan was, Bonnie Patterson, Charlie Weber, Silas Zadeke. So it's going to be a fun one. I'm, uh, I'm excited to see how it plays out. 7 o'clock pregame, 7.30 tip. ETSU, UAB, we'll have that for you on the Buccaneer Sports Network on Wednesday night. Let's talk a little women's hoop after this time out. Buccaneer Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead investing in our community today and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow we're supporting zero emission electric vehicles harnessing the sun to provide clean renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future bright ridge your community power here for you History did men's basketball. Let's take a look at women's basketball. Mike, you were down there for the Gardner Webb game, nip and tuck, and just had a chance. I really kind of felt it. I was uh, sitting here with Trey for the first half, then uh, drove home, listened to the rest of the second half, and what tie game? Had the ball, opportunity. Yeah. Roberts. Hmm. Yeah, and I didn't love the shot. 
chairs at post game. That's what we wanted. We wanted her to get to the mid range, and she was over a double team, and it was kind of a not really a pull up. It was just like a 13 foot push shot with one hand. I mean, yeah, 72, 72. I, you look at the 78, 72 final, and you say, ah, you know, must have been a game where you know, much like Presbyterian, you know, ETSU was down for a lot of it, and they you know came back late to make a close. No, they were right there. I thought this was where they were going to you know, break through offensively and get that result, too. And they were able to put up some big points. You know, 72 was really encouraging to see, especially without Jemiah Griffin, who's going to be out, it sounds like, for at least a couple of weeks, and that's a big loss. That hurts. It does, because she was one of those three, with Ja'Kiah Davis and Jayla Roberts, that really looked like they were forming a trio where you could count on double digits, you know, every day. And without her for an extended period of time, not only does it hurt, obviously, ETSU right now in the court, but it also hurts chemistry down the line, right? Because then she's back, and you have to adjust right before conference season. That's going to be a difficult, there's no question. And especially with the Bucks having scored 55 or less three of their last four, five of their six losses, they've scored 60 or less. I was really excited to see that 72 number, especially without Demaya. Then you turn around and score 41 against Coastal Carolina. That's what Coastal does. They're off to their best start in like 15 years, and they did the same thing to UNCG, who I think is going to be a really improved team in the Southern Conference, held them to below 50 and made the game ugly and just wouldn't give you an inch out there, and it stifled ETSU. So it was frustrating because you're right there before Gardner-Webb scores the last, what, six the game, make it seven of the game. ETSU was actually up 72 to 71 after Taylor Roberts made a three, and then the last seven, uh, all of them came on free throws. But yeah, that Jayla Roberts miss on that running floater. You know, late in games, you talked about it with men's basketball, just learning how to win. The Bucks last year couldn't win a close game, you know, and I think while this team is largely different. It's still one that is trying to figure out who's going to do what in the last moments. Who are we turning to? Do we trust that person? Is that person confident? You know, so it it was a frustrating weekend for women's basketball, specifically that Gardner Webb game because it was right there for the taking. If I can quote Coach Oliver, traumatic in losses, right? <laughs> so I think the difference and I've had a few people ask, Man, I thought, you know, Coach Harris turns thing around like whoa, whoa, whoa. like for seven games Co- coach oliver took over a team that is not that far removed from an ncaa tournament berth that has a lot of guys on it from last year that i've already said probably should have been well above 500 if they could have got the rest of the games in it is the exact opposite situation for coach Harris. Right. let's do not get this they did not both come in at the same time on equal foot okay so i've I've fielded one or two questions, not many, but I've fielded one or two, and I just feel like if, if you can't figure out that Coach Oliver's situation was much better than Coach Harris's situation when he walked in, I think you just really have not paid attention to anything. Right. So, that being said, a couple of glaring things now that you have a bigger sample size. Number one, ETSU still cannot shoot from outside. One game over, two games over 30% from three. Overall, they're shooting 20 Five, give or take percent if you round up. They've also given up 67 more free throw attempts. Yeah. That's got to change. I mean, seven games in, and you're giving up almost 10 more free throws a game. They can't all be officiating. And it can't all be the Georgia Tech game. I'll say that. So, got to be able to get to the free throw line and not foul. 
And Coach Harris kind of. He alluded to it the one game. He did. Early on he said, well, you know, I can't believe that these disparities, discrepancies, you know, free throw totals and fouls. But talking to him before the Gardner-Webb game, he said, you know, I looked at some of it, and yeah, I, I don't think we should be this absurd. I mean, 67 is incredible. But there is some stuff on our end we got to clean up. I think defensively, you know, they are being aggressive. He wanted 69 steals. And they're not turning the ball over as much. Um, they're plus in that. They've turned, what, 24 more steals. They've turned over about 19 times less. So, like, that part of the game, uh, fine, without foul, they cannot foul, continue to steal and not turn the ball over, is the shooting going to come around? And you talk about Griffin being up, man, that's somebody that, that can shoot, can fill it up. And I think offensive woes, if they can get to the line, Maybe get some freebies there. Maybe get going. But they've got to be more efficient from three. They've got to be able to get to the free throw line more. They have to stop fouling and giving up free throws. But I don't know if that's a double-edged sword because if you do that, are they going to be aggressive? Are they going to be able to force the steals? Are they going to be able to, you know, to sort of play the way that I think he wants to play? The messaging from the coaching staff on three-point shooting has been everybody has the green light. And I get that that is a confidence-building thing for this team. And, you know, go out and play free, uninhibited. Like, you know, we, we want to make sure that you're comfortable, enjoying yourself. Like, yeah, we want to put a good product forth, but we have to change a little bit of culture stuff. And so I get that as a tactic, but at some point, when is it hurting more than helping? Like, you look at Jada Rice, Aliyah Vananda, Aliyah Kirtner, Sarah Thompson, Demi Burdick, Maya Adams, Jameer Houston, they've combined for one of 32 from outside. Now, if you take their green light away, and obviously that's not how it works, but that three-point percentage is up here 31 or 32%. And, you know, that's not tremendous, but that is middle of the pack in the Southern Conference most years. So the way they're going about implementing their culture changes and their offense, like, it's going to take time, like you said, and there are going to be bumps in the road early because Coach Harris has taken over a one-win team in the SoCal, one in ten last year, four wins. It was the worst year in program history in the modern era. You look at throughout Buccaneer basketball lore, 54 seasons, it got no worse than last year. Whereas ETSU, yeah, was it a banner year on the men's basketball side? No, but it certainly wasn't bottom-of-the-barrel not a lot of positives to take, fewest wins ever in a 20 or more game season. So, yeah, there's a long way to go. I do wonder, shooting-wise, you know, if they need to rein it in a bit. And Carly Hooks has been someone I was really excited to see this year. I thought she'd make some real progress, but the sophomore slump is major for her right now. She went 35% from the field, 29% from three her freshman year, struggled with efficiency. But instead of moving up in those percentages, she's now at 28-15, 28% from the field, 15% from three. So, Without Demaya Griffin, with Carly Hooks really struggling, it's going to be difficult, and specifically on the offensive end, as we've seen. So there will be brighter days. There's no doubt. It's been a tough early season schedule. Um, but, yes, this is going to be more of a project than an instant infusion of success like Coach Oliver has been able to have on the men's side simply because Coach Oliver, if this is a 400-yard sprint, had about a 200-yard head start. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize – I was looking just at threes and knew that Carly was struggling out there, but when your leading shot taker is shooting 28%, yeah, that's not, yeah. Right. Oof. 
And maybe it's just a sophomore, like we said, you've heard that you know, plenty of times, sophomore slump, right? And then you come back junior year, you're great. But that means if she's going to shoot it like this for a lot of the year, and a lot of the shots have not been close, and we've seen her have good days in the past, we know that talented ability is there. But if she can't figure it out sooner than junior year, if it's going to be like this for her the entire year, then, yeah, if she's going to put up a bunch of shots, she's got that green light, right? They believe in her. Um, those percentages are going to be down. And that's not going to lead to a lot of big point totals. That's probably not going to lead to a lot of big wins. Yeah, and Upton shooting 29% too. So two of the guards you thought might be able to come in and do some things. And then lose Griffith. Griffin shooting 38%, 46% from three. Now she's just 5 of 11, but certainly can score. We'll see because it's a, it's a nice stretch of mid-major games. At App State on Wednesday, Friday UNC Asheville. Then they go to Wake Forest on December 13th. And then uh, at Jacksonville State and, of course, at Tennessee. And that's going to be what it is. And then we'll see what they do the 23rd and the 2nd before they jump into the league play, St. Bonnie's and Lynchburg. This, this will be a nice little stretch. You take out Tennessee, obviously, Wake Forest, and although I know the result from Wake. But you look at App State, UNC Asheville, Jacksonville State, St. Bonnie's, and then, of course, should be a win against Lynchburg. Those four games, I think, could be where ETSU has a chance to maybe make a little headway to get some momentum before they open up in two of the toughest road games they're going to face in the Southern Conference at Mercer. Yeah, there's certainly some winnable games there. Meet Athletic State a couple of years ago. You know, UNCA at home would be great to take down with Jacksonville State. There's usually not much of the women's basketball side to say Bonaventure here right before Christmas. And then Lynchburg, like, there are positives to take from these first seven games. And if you can bring them in, get some belief from your players, make sure that they're not judging themselves based off wins and losses, and you can come away, you know, from the non-conference pretty close to 5-1. Yeah, Tennessee's going to be a loss. Wake, it would be great to go on the road and get a win, but let's just say it's a loss. I mean, okay, that's eight non-conference losses. You can get four or five wins. All of a sudden, to me, you're playing some of your best basketball going into league play. And yeah, Mercer and Stanford, tough, but on the road for the it's like that. All right, that'll do it for our show. We'll be back Thursday previewing Kennesaw State football. FCS playoffs on the Buccaneers.